Don Rahul Jimenez. How amateur is that? Like, you don't even see that down in the park. If they, if they lose, it provides great content. I am supporting every team that plays break. I'm not making a documentary this year about how shit my club is. Mudman, thank you as always. Who would you rather lose it to, by the way, me or Johnny? That's somebody's choice. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of the Football Babble Pod. Um, myself and Patrick, he was supposed to be on the night, but he can't with uh, the brilliant Stephen Scrag, which we'll introduce very soon. Um, we're, we're, we've done our own podcast now. We're going to call it um, I Post for Goalposts, where we, we travel around via podcast, talking to many different people about football from other foreign lands, so to speak. And um, this is sort of the first one. So Stephen Scrag, hello, how are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks, thanks uh, for the invite. Uh, no, but if those who don't know, Stephen is an absolutely stupendous and brilliant um, writer. He's written a couple of brilliant books. Um, I have finished one on the Cup Winners' Cup, which we will get into. And he also writes for these football times and other various things. Um, and he's a big Liverpool fan, so people will think I only invite Liverpool fans on here. And you're right, I don't like anyone else, so you just have to deal with it. Um, but we're going to talk about that, uh, European football and all the different things. <clears throat> um, so, yes, Stephen, you're the first guest on our new podcast I post for goalposts um so oh, no I pressure <laughs> um I just want to touch base with you and sort of get into it like we'll just get get it off the first away what was the what drew you to football writing what was it when was it you decided you wanted to become a writer and, and what was it intrigued you so much about writing about football um well football's always been an omnipresent figure in, in my life you know I was a, the youngest of three siblings uh, my dad, huge Liverpool fan. Uh, my brother, you know, loved them not quite as much as I do, but you know, he, he was well into his football as well. Uh, you know, a sister who couldn't stand it, a mum that would abide it because a you know a, a lad's lover. Um, so yes, you know, I, I always grew up with a football nearby. You know, predominantly wearing a football shirt of one one colour or another. Uh, always out in the, if not out in the the street, kicking a ball around, then you know over the fields. Um, it was, you know, it was always just an omnipresent thing. You know, it, it was just part of the family. Um, and, and within that, you know, as a, as a kid, I used to enjoy uh, writing, you know, just whatever it was. You know, English was always like my favourite subject uh, and just having the chance to, to write about stuff and absolutely adored it. And I think I had a, I don't know, a, a bit of a sort of, I don't know, a, a subconscious love of history as well on, on the side, I think, you know, because I was always kind of like quite interested when anyone had a story to tell, no matter what it was about, you know, if, uh, you know there'd be a story that either someone tells you or it might be something you were reading or a programme on television and you'd, I'd end up sitting through it, be half an hour through it before I'd realise and think, well, it's not like me to be sat watching this or, or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's something that I've come come to terms with as I've, as I've got older. Actually, history can be pretty interesting, no matter what the, the topic yeah. is. So, you know, when when it came down to football, and you and you, you know, there's two sides to my football writing. I do contemporary articles, uh, like after match response pieces on Liverpool's games for for this is Anfield. Yeah. Um, and then for the, for these football times, it it tends to be more the historical side of the game. Um, I still do, you know, the odd the odd opinion piece as such for, for these football times that, that I've done, but it is 95% um, historical stuff. And, uh, you know, it's just, it tends to be stuff that I write would be, um, initially what I was doing was just writing about topics that I wanted to read about. And then I'd, I'd try to write them in a way that I'd like them to be written in. So, you know, for, for a long time, I, I wrote stuff and without the the general idea or, the, or, or within the gist of some, someone else would be out there reading it you know and, and of course people would be reading it but it was predominantly just something that I'd want to read myself and think well no one's written about that or they have written about it but not from my perspective and the way that I see it so I'll write it myself you know and, and, and it's just kind of gone from there you know a start first first um, thing I ever saw in print was a, a letter to 
there was a football magazine called 90 Minutes, which was part magazine, part fanzine in the early 1990s. Um, wrote to the letters page of that and it got printed out and, and there was a bit of a buzz for that and it was kind of, that's great that seeing, seeing something you've written, it was only, no matter how small it was, it was just a case of that that was great and and then I had a friend who started writing for one of the Liverpool fanzines he suggested I write something for them because he'd seen this letter in the in 90 minutes and, um, and it just kind of snowballed from there you know, the internet age you know, blossomed and you know, all sorts of different avenues, you know, suddenly broke out. And, and, you know, I'd only ever refer to myself as an accidental author or a fanzine mm-hmm. gone rogue. You know, I still, you know, don't, you know, if anyone turns around and calls me a, a journalist or, or an author, it's still quite a culture shock. Well, it shouldn't because, and I'm just saying this because we're recording a podcast, but you're absolutely brilliant at what you do. Um, well, what was the letter about in 90 minutes, if you don't mind me asking? Um, you know, I think it was something to do with Liverpool and Man United. I think it was something to do. With, <laughs> someone had written in saying, "Why don't you all just get along or something?" And you know, I, th- I think my point of view was, "Well, you know, just just let us dislike each other." You know, uh, but, yep. but within that, you know, we, we dislike each other because we're a bit similar. You know, it, it was it was that kind of response, basically. Um, yeah, so I, I, can't, I can't I can't recite it word for word, but it was something yeah. along those lines. Um, you were saying as well about history. Uh, you always hear this puke saying, "Don't mix politics with sport." But history and, and whatever, I don't agree with. That. I think politics and sport goes absolutely perfectly together. And so does history, and especially history in football. I think you can, you can, a, a really good football book about a story can be an unbelievable history book as well. Do you know what I mean by that? Like a really, really good football book on something like, um, say, like uh, we were talking about it off, off air, the the Mighty Magyars, obviously, can really tell you the story of a country too and what's going on there. And I think it's brilliant when something does that. Do you find that as well? Yeah, because you know, the football mirrors life in so many ways. Um, you know, we, we did uh, not so long ago for these football times, myself, Stuart Horsfield and Gary Thacker, uh, were asked to do some, um, I don't know what you'd call them, almost kind of like online seminars for the the Prince's Trust. Um, and it was designed at kind of like getting young people enthused in in writing, basically. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was it was billed as a football course, but, you know, we, we tried to put it across it because there was a couple of uh, people on it, kids who were on it, that weren't really into football but liked the idea of writing. So when we put across that, you know, football writing is so much more than just kind of like writing about football matches and football players, is that there's so many different offshoots to the, you know, it, it can be kind of like, you know, you could write about the food banks and how fans have been, you know, collecting for the food banks. It could be, you know, there's absolutely all sorts of offshoots. And uh, one of the, the, the participants was writing about... Um, wheelchair football uh, and, and stuff like that which was great you know and, and so many different tangents that football can take you down both historically and in kind of like humanitarian terms uh, but yeah in, in historical terms yes you know football is just so interlinked with with politics it's you know and you can't stop that because whether that's the bureaucracy of the game or the fact that you know just something like the 1938 World Cup being played within the shadow of, of war, you know, and yeah, uh, you could look at something like Haiti in the 1974 World Cup, you know, um, uh, Papa Doc and stuff like that, and 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 all of the the subterfuge and the threats to their own players and and the expectations, idea or another at the 74 World Cup, you know, especially with World Cups and international football. Um, even now, there the, there are still these these great connotations that, that, that are just so interesting but obviously you know it's something we'll come into is is the concept of uh, eastern european sides you know certainly in the the era of the eastern Bloc, you know behind the iron curtain and, and how teams were, were referred to as, as crack eastern europeans uh, and and it's just kind of like you know so much subterfusion you know it's almost like a bond movie a lot of it that you that you, that you, when, you when you come to look into stuff it's like um, you know Magdeburg and, and and when they played Bayern Munich in the European Cup in 74-75 and uh, now the Stasi um, supposedly kind of like bugging the the Bayern Munich dressing room in the in the home leg, uh, but the Magdeburg coach refusing to kind of like listen into what was being said and, and, yeah. and all of this and, and 
there are, you know, you, you, you can't split football and politics. You know, yes, you, you can go onto a pitch, kick a ball around. But, you know, if, if you, you turn around saying split football and politics, then, you know, you, you're barking, you're barking, you know, you howl at the moon. <laughs> um, let's get into to the book, um, A Cup Winner's Cup One. Um, which, I, like, when I got it, I, I my first memory of the Cup Winner's Cup was, and I think I told you this before, um, was uh, Liverpool and PSG. Um Playing in that in that uh, in the semi final, and I was only about I think I was only about eight or nine, so I didn't really grasp the concept of how big this game was. It wasn't until I got a little bit older, but that was sort of I thought this tournament was unbelievable. And even Jafranco Zola's goal in Stuttgart, that screamer he scored, and Palmer. But what was it drew you to write about this? Like what what when did the the light switch go? Thinking I'm gonna do this book on the Cup Winners Cup and, and the forgotten the forgotten trophy that it was. Well, we'd, we'd done a, a podcast series for these football times on the the golden era of the the three major European tournaments as was. So that was the Cup Winners' Cup, the European Cup as was, so prior to the, the Champions League age. And uh, and the UEFA Cup, when it was the UEFA Cup or the UEFA Cup, as, as you know, yeah. some of us as will insist on calling it. Um, so, yes, you know, we'd, we'd done these three podcasts. They, they went down quite well. They were pretty popular. Uh, and one of my fellow senior writers at these football times, Will Sharp, had, had only part tongue in cheek said, uh, "You need to put a cup winners' cup book on your list of uh, your to do list." And uh, I was already in discussions with publishers over a book of a completely different topic nature. Um, <laughs> and this would have been, oh, it must have been, I don't know, twenty eighteen. It must have been. Um, so the more. No, laughed, laughed it off, but then the more I put thought into it, it was, well, 2019 was going to be the 20th anniversary of the, the discontinuation of the tournament. Uh, it just suddenly ticked a lot of boxes. So because this other topic I was writing this book about, which is still to be finished, but, you know, was, was less relevant in a uh, on, on the football calendar, I put that on the back burner and said, right, let's, let's go with it with the Cup Winners' Cup. And the publisher I was talking to, I just mentioned the idea was on the drawing board and, and they were just like, yeah, let's just go with it without a word being written. It was like, yes, this makes sense. I really like the sound of it. Um, you know, they, they asked me about, uh, you know, any thoughts of a book cover. Um, I just come to look at some pictures. All thought it was all still hypothetical, you know, uh, scenario uh, until they sent me, you know, a, a mocked up image of the front cover. And then I thought, my God, it's 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 very very real, and and I need to put some some words behind that picture now, and that's that's kind of the way it, it just it just went. It was you know um, just in the right place at the right time, and you know it was the right topic for the right moment, and uh, it all just fell into place. I love the name, a tournament frozen in time, because that's that's effectively what it. That's effectively what's happened. Like, we, if you think about it, it's mad that we have this European tournament that um, the biggest clubs in Europe all played in. Some of them obviously won, some of them didn't, uh, and it's just stuck there. UEFA decided we're not going to have this anymore. Both, it's gone. It's just stuck there. So, I really love the name, Steve, as well. Tournament Frozen Time. But when you're covering and, and writing about this book, and obviously said you picked the idea, and then it, it just sort of snowballed, and that was it. Um, like, was there a team? when you're writing it, or, or a, a story that you fell in love with from the Cup Winners' Cup? Was there a particular story, a particular chapter that you just loved writing? Uh, yeah, for me, the Cup Winners' Cup was always about uh, Dinamo Tbilisi. Uh, you know, uh-huh. I, it's probably the first season I remember uh, properly, 80-81, vague recollections of Arsenal reaching the 1980 final and losing this penalty shootout, uh, but not really being kind of like, fully clear on what it was all about, but you knew it was something of significance and that Arsenal hadn't won because of penalties and stuff like that. So uh, 80-81 is kind of like the first season that I really imbibe football in in working out the mechanics of it, you know, cup competitions, the table and what it means. You know, you win a game, you get points and, you know, you go up and down the table and stuff like that. So that was the that was really the first season that I was fully switched on about football. Um, so yeah, the, within that, you know, Dino Tbilisi were just massive in, in it, that that season. You know, I think I think it must have stemmed from 
when they played West Ham at Upton Park and, and just how ruthless they were. Uh, you know, West Ham were a second division side at the time, but they were they were better than half of the first division. Uh, you know, they had an incredible side. You know, Phil Parks was was the world's most expensive goalkeeper at one stage. You know, Ray Stewart at right back. Uh, you know, they had uh, I think they still have Frank Lampard. You know, the, the first coming of Frank Lampard. Uh, mm-hmm. They had Billy Bonds. They had Alan Martin, uh, Trevor Brookian. Uh, Alan Devonshire, you know, all the names tripped off the tongue. It was a, it was a great, great side. They, they won the FA Cup from the second division in 1980. And, you know, they, they reached the League Cup final against Liverpool. So I think that was why they were on my radar, you know, keeping an eye on them because they were coming up to us in the, in the League Cup final. And then there they were playing Dino Tbilisi, who absolutely dismantled them in the, <laughs> in the most stylish of, of manners. And it, it was just a, a beautiful ruthlessness. Uh, and then... Later on, when I got older and, and I'm you know, kind of like um, researching Liverpool games of the past and stuff like that, then Tbilisi tip up on Liverpool's radar. You know, they, Liverpool, they beat us in the the uh, early early exchanges of the 79-80 European Cup. And when you come and look at the footage of that, you're thinking, God, yeah, you know, they absolutely destroyed us. And, and it became a, a bit of a badge of honour to be beaten by this this side. Uh, you know, and, and they were a wonderful team. The more I, ju- I just wanted to know more and more about them over the years, and, and, and any chance to read up on them or see footage of, of how they played, I'd always, I'd always grab it. Um, and and, and that was where that 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 came from. That that you know fascination with Dino Tbilisi. Were they were they the last great Georgian team? Yes, yeah, they they were. By, you know, they were, you know, they they were they were a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful side. You know, uh, Shivadza, Daraselia, you know, they, they 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 had so many, you know, iconic players. I think they had about four players that went to the nineteen eighty two World Cup finals, and it could have been double that. You know, it, it they really were a wonderful, wonderful side. You know, they they were the stereotypical crack Eastern European outfit that the commentator would always, you know, trot out the line of. You know they played in all white and, and they just glowed on the pitch. You know and, and and they were they were fast and it was the the way that the ball would predominantly remain on the floor as well. You know it was none of this English football propensity to play the ball into the channels and and you know high crosses into the penalty area and stuff like that. They were just they were fast paced. They were skilled and 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 they would they just you know, absolutely ripped teams apart. They were wonderful, wonderful side. Did you ever have you ever got to see them live? No, unfortunately not. Um, no, that was that was one thing that passed me by. I, I, even now, you know, uh, uh, basically uh, almost a, a, not the semi-pro side, but a three-quarter pro side. I'd love, I'd love, still love to catch up and, and be able to put that on the uh, my done list as, as watching Dean World's Police in action. Was there was there any other? Is there any other Eastern European side thing? Because we were talking off air about our love for Eastern European football, and mine is like just because of. That that uh, Hungarian team, the mighty Magyars that were coming through, and just uh, going. This sounds so stupid, like um, but go. I've always wanted to go to Budapest, and then we went to Budapest myself, my wife, and and friends, and I just fell in love with the place, like just the place in general. Um, so yeah. I want to go back. C- couldn't see any teams. They were they were building that arena that Liverpool played in last week. It wasn't finished yet, so I couldn't see anyone play. But is there is there any other teams, or, or what is it? And what was it about Eastern European football at the time? Was it because it was so exotic? Because we didn't have internet, we didn't have football on twenty four seven. That you didn't know what was coming up next. And the next thing, as you just said, a team in white turned up and just slapped your team all over the pitch for ninety minutes. Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there was a lot of that behind it. You know, there were so many other teams that that also caught the eye. You know, Red Star Belgrade were, you know, a wonderful, wonderful side. You know, taught Liverpool a lesson. In the mid seventies, you know, that's the game that you know um, mythology states that Liverpool changed the the pattern of their central defence from that point on. That you know, rather than traditional British stoppers, they they changed to this you know ball playing central defensive unit. And and there's there's part truth in it, and there's there's part myth in it because it was something that eventually evolved. Uh, reasonably by chance, you know, uh, Larry Lloyd picked up an injury that ruled him out for the rest of the season. So Phil Thompson dropped back from central midfield. People don't realise he was a central midfielder. 
as a kid and, and he dropped into central defence. Emlyn Hughes had previously done that a couple of months earlier to cover for Tommy Smith, who'd shifted to cover right back when Chris Lawler got injured. So as much as, yes, there was a change in ethos, uh, you know, part of it was by chance as well. Uh, but Liverpool stumbled across this this way of playing the ball out of central defence and rather than kicking the ball at the field from the goalkeeper and, and playing the percentages, roll the ball out, the central defenders bring the ball out and, and join the attack, basically. It was a form of total football. Um, so, yes, you know, people in teams like Red Star Belgrade have a massive burden. Uh, Farank Varosh, you know, uh, Budapest side, uh, you know, were absolutely massive. They were another side and, and, and they were all technically brilliant football teams. And, and that's the thing, yeah. you know, so much of it was one touch and pass and speed of, of movement. Um, you know, the, there was very little wastage of the ball. You know, that, that's always the thing for me is that when you're watching um, teams, it's it's the way that they, they won't give the ball away easily. And, you know, they're not always wanting to win it back just for the sake of winning it back. It's, you know, there's certain parts of the pitch to win it back, there's certain parts of the pitch to let the opposition have it. And it's that that football intelligence that was just so captivating. Uh, but yeah, so many teams, you know, Dinamo Kiev were another one that, that were wonderful. They won the Cup Winners' Cup twice, you know, 75 and 86, uh, 11 years apart. But the fact that, you know, Oleg Blockin played in both of those games, won, won both of those finals with them, uh, Valery Lobanovsky was the coach of, on both occasions. Uh, you know, the, the, there's just some you know epically wonderful sides. You know, stuff like uh, Slovan Bratislava win it in '69 as well, um, and to do so in a year where Czechoslovakia had been invaded, you know, by by the Soviet mm-hmm. Union along with you know allies, you know, from from East East Germany and and you know several of the nations, and um, there was a uh, because of this political issue, the, the UEFA um, bracketed in the European competitions. They they drew the Eastern European sides together to try and draw some of the sting rather than East versus West sides. Uh, so the many of these Eastern European sides boycotted the European competitions, but you know not not Slovan Bratislava. They they stuck in the uh, point of principle and went and won it uh, in the, in the same year that um, who was it now. There was a run to the semi-final for another Czechoslovak side. Can't quite remember who it is now, but you know it, it was it was another one. So you know they had a great year in '68, '69 uh, as far as you know uh, football was concerned in in what was a politically volatile um, era. So yes, you know the so many of these Eastern European sides that that did so well, but particularly in the Cup Winners' Cup. Like I think you sound a bit like me, Steve. Where you'll watch. Uh, you'll like to see a Eastern European team do well, but you'll also a lot of people will knock the Europa League. M- maybe it's a maybe it's a fan. It's a it's a sort of a thing developed within the fan bases of English clubs to knock it. I love the Europa League. I really do enjoy it. Like I, I know people, it's Thursday night football, blah blah blah, and there's a lot of uh, humour and whatever given out about it. But I I love what it can do. I would if Liverpool look. We're Liverpool fans here. It's not looking too hot that we're going to make the Champions League next season because everyone's injured. <laughs> um, but if they were to get in the Europa League next year, I'd love them to get in the Europa League and get some mad away ties across Eastern Europe. I think that would be perfect. And especially if, if we are, heaven forbid, allowed to travel, I'd love to get to somewhere mad in Eastern Europe and watch Liverpool play football. They, they were always the best away trips. You know, the, I think when we won in 2001, uh, there, were, there were trips to Liberac, uh, yes, and there was uh, Bucharest as well. We played rapid Bucharest, I think it was. So, you know, the, those trips off the beaten track were always the, the best things about uh, be, being in the UEFA Cup or uh, the Europa League as is now. Um, I, I do lament the, the Europa League, but only based on the format of the tournament and the fact that they changed yeah. the name. Um, you know, it, it's just, you know, you, you tend to be hardwired to the football of your youth. Uh, so, you know, even now, you know, I, I frown at group stages rather, you know, much, 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 much prefer you know, two-legged European football. Um, uh, so, yes, you know, the, there are parts of modern football that, that I frown about, but there's still some great beauty out there as well. Uh, I've had some of the times in my life watching watching Liverpool, you know, as much in recent years than, than I did through my childhood. 
um, you know, had some had some wonderful times, some some great road trips, and and some uh, just some just some brilliant brilliant times. Is there if you were to pick one um, Eastern European team that was your favourite? I, I think I might know the answer. You might have already talked about it, but what do you think was out of that era? And we'll go right up into say that unreal Dynamo Kiev side of Shevchenko and Rebrov. They're sort of my first real memories of an Eastern European team. You know. Staying in, in my conscious because Liverpool weren't in the European Cup when I was like I was born eighty eight, so they weren't really coming into the European Cup, and and whatever when I um when I was growing up as a child. But Dino Kiev were always in it, and they'd be playing against teams. And you'd see them on ITV or whatever or over here. You'd see them on RTE and different things. You'd think, oh, they're unbelievable. This guy is mental. So, is there a team of yours if you could pick? Say, if I give you the chance now to go back and watch one team in their pump play, who would it be? From, oh, from Eastern it'd Black. definitely be definitely be Dinamo Tbilisi, but uh, you know Dinamo Kiev would be a very close second. You know the yeah. fact that uh, what, what's fascinating about Kiev is the fact that there's there's been more than one coming of of, of Dinamo Kiev. Uh, you know, as the team of the mid seventies that won the Cup Winners' Cup, beating Ferenc Varosh in an all European final as well in seventy five, uh, and then to win it again in in eighty five eighty six. Um, with um, Igor Belanov, who, who was part of that side, who, you know, he won the Ballon d'Or. He, he, they were they they tore uh, Atletico Madrid apart on Spanish soil in, in that final. I think the final was in Seville. Um, so yes, you know, Dinamo Kiev, you know, have a, a great fascination for them as well, and the fact that they came strong again uh, at the end of the last millennium, basically, and just inside to the to the new one. Uh, the Shevchenko and Reverov side, you know, I'd, I'd have adored for them to have got to that Champions League final. That would have Same. been kind of like the last, the last great hurrah for Eastern Europe, really, uh, as far as football is concerned. Um, I think it, I still lament that as one of one of my biggest disappointments of of the the Champions League era. Um, that 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 it would have been a brilliant farewell, really, because you know no one was under any illusions that. The, they couldn't hold on to these players for much longer, uh, and of course they didn't. Uh, and within that, you know, the last the last two decades, uh, the relevancy of Eastern European sides has has diminished greatly uh, because of this. The, the talent drain, basically, you know, they've not been able to afford to keep hold of their best players. Um, you know, they, they were soon shipped to the big glamour leagues of of Western Europe. Um, you know, in a way, kind of like the the gas-powered, gas-funded Russian Premier League has, you know, redressed the balance a little bit. But you know, it doesn't have the charm of of what went before. No, it's a, like I've I've actually I was at Anfield the night we played Zenit uh, under Brennan Rogers uh, in the Europa League, and even the like now I had a few tins, but I was enjoying myself. You know, beforehand I was I was with. Obviously, the Mad Zenith fans and different things, and th- this felt like a proper European tie because you're playing a team from Eastern Europe. And this is cool, and then they turned up and put us out, which wasn't ideal. Um, but they were very, they were very good that night. To be fair, and Jimmy Carter wasn't he had a nightmare. Um, but it, these things happen. Um, I want to touch on as well. Before, we'll come back to a bit more of, of Europe, Eastern Europe, or European football. Sorry, and I want to we'll finish off and maybe one of your favourite sides of all time. But just on Liverpool. If that's okay, um, because we're both Liverpool fans here, you get the right about them. Um, what's it been like being a Liverpool fan? Like, obviously, you, you've saw some successful times, and we've had the dip, and now nigh under Klopp. What's it like for you to write about Liverpool, especially last season? How did that feel? Oh, it was just so easy to do, uh, just a joy to do. You know, you you were basically putting your feelings. On uh, on a screen and, and and uploading it and you know some someone was putting it online for you you know and and, and it was it was just an amazing thing uh, you know it, I can write something and it's it's out there uh, for people to read often within about half an hour of me finishing it um, mm-hmm. and I, the feedback I get is is like ninety eight percent positive people seem to to enjoy what I write. Um, I know I often refer to it as as a little bit of pattern analysis and, and a little bit of navel gazing. Uh, you know, I can write an article that, that doesn't even mention you know a man of the match or a goal scorer. Uh, you know, it often has a theme to it that 
uh, you know, I don't, I don't really set out to, to write about, but it just organically goes that way. So, you know, I, I have a lot of fun writing the stuff that I do for this Anfield. Um, you know, the, the, often all sorts of different tangents to go down. Um, but yes, they've, they've been an absolute joy to, to write about. Um, you know, Jurgen Klopp's been phenomenal. And I know we're going through a patchy run at the minute, and, but even if he if he was to walk away tomorrow, you know, Liverpool Football Club will benefit from having been in his presence for, for, for many years to come, if not decades. You know, we recently did a podcast uh, with Bob Holmes, who wrote a book about uh, the similarities of, of Shankly and Klopp and, um, you know, the, the ethos and the, and the socialism, basically, of the two and the way that they have, have thrived at Liverpool and, and connected with the supporters and, and all of that. Um, and, and it's true. All of, all of it's true. You know, and, and when we were talking about the, the Shankly era, you know, it's 60 odd, you know, it's over 60 years since he first walked into Anfield as, as manager of the club and and still today you know a lot of his principles and his thoughts on football and life in general uh, are held up as as being relevant and you know uh, they are these these unwritten rules you know these scriptures almost uh, that that Liverpool adhere to and and there isn't anyone there's no other club quite like Liverpool for that uh, you know the 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 way that they just you know, kind of like take these, I don't know, these these ideals forward, and 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 if any manager comes in and, and veers away from it, it doesn't tend to go so well. It's mm. the similarity they Cruyff at Barcelona, or Michael's at Ajax. It's the way that you know Shankly's influence still touches the club now. You know, sixty years after his arrival, forty years after his death, uh, and it'll be similar with Klopp because of of that that light for light kind of ethos and, and thoughts. And, uh, you know, I fully believe that, you know, the the work of Klopp will reverberate at Anfield for a long time to come. Uh, and one thing that, you know, I've always insisted is that, you know, we, we did come close under Brendan Rodgers and we did come close under Rafa Benitez and, you know, not quite as close, but compelling efforts under Gerard Houllier and Roy Evans. Uh, but because we didn't win the title under those, and, and, you know, the, the time had passed and, and particularly under Rodgers, you know, I think that broke the club to an extent, you know, that, that really, you know, people believed it was going to happen and, and then it didn't. And, and that yeah. took some getting over to the point that even when Klopp arrived, you know, a lot of fans were still kind of like mourning that, that, that loss of the title into 2013, 14, uh, you know, it took a lot of getting over, um, but for Klopp to turn it around and, and deliver not just like the Champions League, but but the Premier League as well, and to break that that barren spell, uh, you know, I, I don't think there was anyone else that could have done it. Uh, after after all those near misses, it had got to a point where I, I doubt there's any other man on the face of the planet that could have led Liverpool to that title. You know, if it wasn't for him, it could have been another 20 or 30 years beyond this before, before yeah. we did it. You, know, you can look at teams like Newcastle who've not won it for eighty odd years. You know that could be, that could that could have been Liverpool as well. It's uh, and like non-Liverpool fans will probably roll their eyes and whatever, but unless you're you're involved or you follow the club, you you just you won't understand what that means. Do you know? He, as you said, there's yeah. no, no one like Liverpool. It's just it's just how he gets. How we feel like, and and I'm saying we as if I'm, I'm I'm a scouser. Like I lived there for three years at university. I've been back since three or four times, and as soon as I've stepped foot off the plane, I felt like I'm at home. I feel more at home in Liverpool than I do from my my own hometown where I'm from. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, because it's just it's 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 the buzz of the city, and it's not just I'm not just talking Liverpool fans. It's it's the it's the way the city moves and rocks and rolls. And things happen. And it takes these punches and it just rolls with them. Or, or what I love most about it is it fights back. And you don't want to mess, piss it off because it'll fight back in a big, big way, and you'll be in big trouble. And yeah. he is exactly the same, and he gets all that. Do you he, know does, I mean? he does. He does. He completely. He completely gets it. He's, you know, he's. It's like Bill Shankly. You know, he wasn't from Liverpool. He came to Liverpool, and he and he got the place, and he felt at home. And you know, I think that's the same for for Jurgen Klopp. It was the same for Rafa Benitez, who's who's still got property just over the water in the Wirral. Yeah. You know, he's got daughters that have Scouse accents and stuff like that. You know, it's just always always makes you smile. 
but Liverpool it's one case of those dogs cases, as well. <laughs> and yeah. You, yeah. It's, but it is. It's one of those places, and, and there are other places around the world that that have a similar vibe, and you know, very much a, a seaport, and a, you know, a, as as a city, we we tend to to look out to the sea for our influences and our our friends and our allies, rather than towards the hills or. You know, we do. We we look out for our. You know, we we absorb. It's a, it's a sponge of a city that that draws people in. You know, learns lessons from them, and uh, and and just kind of like you know, constantly evolves and morphs into into different shapes and and, and parallels and stuff like that. And it's it is. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, you know, I, I always feel like a you know certain similarities in in, in other cities as well. Uh, I think there's a common theme between Liverpool and and, and several other places that, that are very much like it. Where where does this Liverpool team rank for you uh, in terms of of all time great sides? Uh, Liverpool, Liverpool sides, Liverpool sides. I mean, just not not all football. I mean, just in in club yeah. wise. Uh, yeah, the the best Liverpool sides that I've seen have been Jurgen Klopp's, uh, Dalglish's eighty seven eighty eight side, Oof. and you know. Uh, you know Liverpool 78, 79 side that you know I, I was too young to appreciate, knew of them, uh, and and saw you know all of those players. But in the the latter stages, you know through 79, 80 is the first season that I switch up. I always remember watching Liverpool against Norwich on Match of the Day and that goal that Justin Fashion who scores uh, on a day oh, that yeah. it's, uh, it ended five three and, and uh, David Furclough got a hat trick and he had red hair and I had bright copper red hair. When I was a kid, uh, you know, you get called Duracell at school and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's it's gone now, but you know, but at the time it was a proper, you know. And I had this affinity to David Furkler, uh back then because he is this copper copper nerd, you know, lad who's, who's scoring goals for Liverpool. You know, he, he's not given a chance very often, but when he does, he seems to score. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I can always remember really, and that's the day I sat up and properly took notice. It was, you know, it was always there. It was always kind of like, oh yeah, football's on or. Yeah, I'll kick a football outside or whatever. But but to be properly transfixed by it, that that Liverpool Norwich game was the big switch on. Um, so yes, you know I remember so many of that that seventy eight seventy nine side. Uh, you know that that wonderful midfield of Ray Kennedy, Jimmy Case, Terry McDermott, and, and Graham Souness, with you know Dalglish and Johnson in front of them. You know uh, Clements and Goal, Phil Neal at right back, Alan Kennedy at left back, Hanson and Thompson at central defence. That team was was incredible. You know, uh, I, you're too young to enjoy that eye of the storm, 78, 79 season, but fully enjoyed what followed in the in the two or three seasons that followed uh, before Paisley, you know, dismantled it and changed it again. Uh, you know, so several seasons that I've enjoyed, you know, more than others. It's set, you know, 80, 81, 81, 82 really felt like like my side the, when they won the title and came back from 12th on Boxing Day and stuff like that. And, couple of young kids were thrown in. So, you know, Ian Rush emerged and, and Ronnie Wheel and got a more regular place in the side. And suddenly these youngsters were making an impression and a, and a difference. And so these were the first players coming into the Liverpool side, uh, it, you know, from a standing start, basically. You know, the, the Liverpool that I became attuned to was the team that I just wrapped off before. You know, they they were yeah. just the omnipotent side. So, basically the side that you, your football and consciousness is born with. Uh, so that, that that first generation of change meant Ian Rush and Ronnie Wheel and Mark Lawrence and the right Mark Lawrence and Robillard taking over from from Ray Clements and, and, and stuff like that. You know, Craig Johnston's signing and you know Steve Nickel pops up and and they're they're the players that suddenly become mine because I've seen them arrive into the Liverpool team. Uh, but yes that 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 team, you know, I, I adored you know, we all we all love Kenny Dalglish, and, and Kenny Dalglish was everyone's default favourite. But we would all have, you know, another one that would be our our kind of other favourites. And and you know, a load of people adore Graham Souness, and you know, uh, a mate of mine, Carl Kopak, is absolutely you know in adoration of Ray Kennedy. Uh, Love yeah. them all, but Tom, you know, really kind of like spoke to me. You know, the goals that he'd score were just the most incredible. Goals that probably transcend time as well. If you look them up on YouTube, you know, just look up his, his array of goals. There's one uh, in the 7-0 against Spurs. The, oh, yes. 
starts and finishes, that wonderful one that, that has about three or four players in between. You know, he starts it on the edge of his own six-yard box and finishes it on his six-yard box. Uh, you know, there's the, the chip against Aberdeen in the European Cup. There's uh, the lob, that amazing lob that he scores in the FA Cup semi-final in 77 against Everton. There's there's a, another stunning volley against Tottenham. He picked on Tottenham so many times in FA Cup quarter-final at White Hart Lane in 1980. You know, I, I was just transfixed by Terry McDermott, that style, that dip of the shoulder. And, you know, it, it was just all you know, the movement, the you know the attitude and, and, and just, the, you know, the enjoyment he seemed to have of football was what spoke to me. Some players were very, very serious and very stern. Jimmy Cakes, very serious, very stern. You know, absolutely adored him, you know, Ray Ray Kennedy was was the silk and left sided midfielder that, that was you know, you know quarried out of a, a misfit striker by by Bob Paisley. One of the biggest acts of football genius ever was Paisley's you know trans transformation of, of Ray Kennedy from a from a, a misfiring striker into a left sided midfielder of immense purpose. Uh, you know the most complete midfielder in in, in Graham Souness, but. You know, they're all quite serious in, in, in kind of like personality almost, you know. But, yeah. but McDermott was just full of joy and and he, and he bounded around the pitch. He was almost like a Tigger in comparison. Uh, you know, absolutely <laughs> adored his, his love of the game. Is, I, I met Ian Rush once. Uh, we were over, uh, myself and my father were over at, at a Champions League game and he was doing a... Um, like a Q and A night in the bar the night before somewhere. I can't remember where it was, um, but I met him. Now I had seen Liverpool play. Liverpool used to come to Belfast and play in like the Smithwick's Cup. It was called. So it was uh, Liverpool, Linfield, Glentoran, and then Benfica would yeah. play. And and um, I was also at the Liverpool Liverpool playing Benfica in the final. And I was at that game twice, two years in a row or something. I think it was. And um, so we saw Rush, and we were in this pub, and and um. He sat in the way to my dad, and I and dad goes, we saw you at, at at Windsor Park one time, and he's looking at me, and I was still teenagerish, teen, yeah, still a teenager. He says, oh, did you see me play? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, and he goes to me, did you play well? And I, I'm not an idiot, but you're gonna think I am. And I says back, this is Ian Rush, multiple European Cup winner, Ian Rush. And I says, no, you were shite. And like his his face dropped, and then he he burst out laughing. Thankfully, after and my dad obviously was completely scundered, and he couldn't believe what I'd done. I didn't mean it to be rude. I just I just I would think I was so nervous that Ian Rush was talking to me, you know, as if I was like as if it me like, and I just says no, you were shit. And then I I couldn't get the apology out quick enough, and, and my dad bought him a pint now or whatever, and we had a bit of crack afterwards. And, and but even when he was leaving, he was saying to me, you know, I can't, like laughing and joking about. It. I couldn't believe I'd said this. So if I ever meet him ever again, I'm going apologize straight away because it, it didn't it never dawned on me at the time when it, even when i was a baby going to watch the play at belfast that players that came were still playing european cup winners whereas if i was going now and they were playing in belfast i'd be beside myself seeing this team and you were talking there about uh sort of an unsung hero saying people that you you love you love Terry mcdermott and how he ran, goes about the pitch and the joy he does now my unsung hero i absolutely adore the ground jordan henson walks on I adore him. Like he is my one and only. And people, I, I know I'm probably one of, one of the only ones that thinks this because it's Jordan Anderson. He's not flashy and whatever. And but I just I lo- I hated the constant bail that he would have would have got for a couple of years. Do you know what I mean? And, and and the pressure that was put on him when he was given the armband when Gerard left and all different things and how Liverpool were going through a, a spurt and obviously Jurgen comes in and he brings us back. And I just. When he lifted that trophy uh, in the summer there, even though he wasn't playing, I've never been more at peace with myself watching the Liverpool Football Club. Like, it was 30 years of pain and hurt, and then to see him do it, like, he, he, like people think, because I grew up in the era of Gerrard, it would be Gerrard. Yes, Gerrard's fantastic. Probably the best Liverpool player I'll ever see, like, I'm going to be honest. like. But Jordan Henderson is my one and only. He is my ultimate hero. What do you make of Jordan oh, Henderson? Right. What do you I think can't. of... Yeah. I, 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 I'd never knock that, you know. He, he, for me, I was I was in on the ground floor when we signed Jordan Henderson, and people were saying twenty million, and you know, and uh, you know what what what's this about? He, you know, couldn't take to him a lot of a lot of supporters, but you know, I I was in on the ground floor. I'd absolutely loved him. He scored. I remember him score. I can't remember who it was against, but he scored a goal quite early on. He was playing on the right hand side of midfield, and he curled it in, and and it was you know it, it was the goal of a player of substance, you know, and. and 
and it was just one of those where you thought, you know, there's a player in this, in, in, in him. and and yeah, it took a bit of time for him to get there. But you know, he, he initially played out of position. Dagley should play him on the right hand side of midfield. That wasn't wasn't where he, he should have been. Uh, but um, and then later on, you know, uh, Brendan Rodgers' flirtations and trying to send him to Fulham in, in part exchange for for, for um, Clint Dempsey, which yeah. was which just drove me insane. Because again, you know, it, 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 I could see this player that was that was he was there, you know, and I can I can always remember him, him sitting much of that first Brendan Rodgers season out of the side, the first half of the season, but he showed such. Uh, tremendous professionalism at that point as well. It was, so many other players would have just said, "Right, I'm off," you know, and, and gone somewhere. Uh, but he didn't. He stayed and he fought, and you know, he worked. And you could see the work ethic. And you know, he, he'd not be playing, but he'd be on the touchline. Uh, you know, virtually all the game. You know, prepared and to go on in the off. You know, in the chance that he'd be going on. Uh, and you know, you could you could see that other substitutes that be. Uh, you know, a downcast nature to them because they weren't playing, they hadn't been picked. But but Henderson wasn't. You know, he was just peak professionalism, no matter what role he'd been given. Uh, so yeah, you know, I I, I was always always been for for Jordan Henderson. Uh, and yeah, you know, absolutely delighted. You know, the the, the footage of him, you know, with, with Klopp and with his dad when when we won the Champions League in Madrid. Uh, you know, absolutely, you know. Well, you know, if, if that doesn't, if no, if that didn't make it out, then you, you know you, you're never gonna, you know, you're never gonna feel any kind of like great vibes for for Jordan Henderson. But no, I'm I'm delighted that he's the captain of of this side that has done so well. Yeah, that 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 moment uh, in Madrid was just unbelievable. I think I think I didn't think I could love him any more than I did, and then there was that moment, and then obviously he led us to. Our first league title in thirty years last year, and now he can do whatever he wants. As far as I'm concerned, Jordan Henderson, I just adore him. Um, we'll not talk too much about Liverpool because people think I'm just rigging a podcast to talk about them again. <laughs> uh, probably I am, but I don't care. Um, now I said to you as well today. Um, apart from Liverpool, one of my first loves, uh, and first things that drew, drew me to football was was a '94 World Cup. Now. People always sort of some of my best friends will slag me and abuse me because I would only have been coming six and think you'll never remember that. And maybe that's part of that true. Maybe it's more of older family members after that World Cup have fed it into me now and video footage. And you know, I've developed a, an understanding of it from that. But I adored and still do Roberto Baggio. Uh, he was my first hero in football and that Italy team. And I remember um, watching that World Cup final and my dad let me sit up to watch it and crying when he missed and I took a tantrum like when he missed and my dad having to explain to me this is what happens sometimes and you know it's a penalty shootout but I did not even understand it was a penalty shootout Steve you know what I mean I was that young I didn't know what was going on so was there an international team that you adore that drew you to football that, that you love to talk about um Yes, there are a few. You know, the, the Brazil of my my first World Cup of, of, of fully consciousness was was eighty two. Uh, so that that Brazil side that that Stuart has written a fantastic book about. Uh, yes. You know, Zico, Socrates, uh, Oscar, Ada, you know, Falcao, you know, Cerezo, you know, so many junior, you know, so, so many, you know, brilliant memories of watching that Brazil side and. Uh, that that wonderful goal, the the, the dummy, and the, and the hit from distance to win it late against the Soviet Union, the you know the the beautiful anger of, of beating Scotland, Scotland having the temerity to score first, and and uh-huh. yeah, and the ball past them, you know, and, and you know when 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 I eulogise about that game, people think it's like being, you know, derogatory to Scotland, and it's like, well, no, you know, Scotland are blessed for being a part of that game. You know, there's this great sense of of you know, um, association, you know, that, that you are, you know, you, you were amongst greatness, you know, so that I think Scotland are blessed to have been on that pitch with that, that Brazilian team and, and to have played <laughs> such a role in that game as well. So because that Scotland goal was brilliant, you know, and I can remember jumping up and celebrating that goal as a kid. Um, you know, I, I grew up kind of like, you know, because it, it was soon S, it was Dark Leash, it was Alan Hansen. So, you know, England would play Scotland and I'd be shouting, shouting for, for, for for Scotland because Scotland. of the <laughs> Liverpool contingency. You know, I was never growing up to, to 
be be told the value of the England team. Now, I, I didn't realise that England had won a World Cup until I got the Patini 82 album. Uh, you know, and the, there's the names of the previous winners on the on the inside page. Uh, you know, I, I was brought up by my dad, who was telling me all about Roger Hunt and Peter Thompson and stuff like that. You know, he even knew about some of Everton's stars, and you know, because he respected them and he had mates. So, you know, he was of that era where he'd go to Anfield on you know, one Saturday, and you know, if Liverpool were away somewhere far flung, he'd go to Goodison with his mates and watch, you know, watch Everton. So, you know, I, I grew up with the stories of those sides and, and watching my own heroes. So, yeah, I, I was utterly blindsided by the fact that England had won a World Cup. Uh, so, yeah, you know, England-Scotland games are take place. I want Dark Leash to be winning this game. You know, <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't have been right to be cheering against the team with Dark Leash. You know, how would you do that as a, as a seven, eight, nine-year-old Liverpool sporting yeah. kid? Uh, so yeah, you know that that was all about it. So yeah, no, I was all for Scotland at the 1982 World Cup, but you know uh, there was just this beauty about them being picked apart by Brazil. You know, it, it was almost like you know anger in the you know almost like they, they went and shook the bees' nest, and 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 then the bees have come out and stung them. You know, it's, it's that type of effect. That was a wonderful goal by David Nerdy, but then there's such beauty in Brazil's response to it. Uh, and then you know into those second round group stages and and the games against Argentina and Italy, just such style and, and you know fragility about it, and to, and to lose against Italy the way they did, I was transfixed by that team just as any kid was at that World Cup. But you know the the France side as well, the Platini and and Gires and, and and all of those. Uh, you know, and, and I grew to respect the Italian team that went on to win it as well because there, there was a double-sided coin to that Italy side. Um, you know, so prosaic in the early stages of the World Cup, but then became, you know, so so thunderous so late on. You know, there's there's an artistry to to how they beat West Germany in the final. Uh, you know, I think it's the is it, is it Tardelli's goal or it's it's the one where yeah yeah it is Tardelli's goal. You know, it, it's his. Celebration, but it's the build-up to it. You know, it's, sure, uh, yeah. it's you know, all of that. You know, I can, I can hear John Motton's commentary in my head every time I, I think of that goal. So yes, I'd, I'd had all of these. You know, that was my first World Cup, but the one that that really kind of like won me over was in the next World Cup, and you know, the European Championship that was in between, and that was Denmark. You know, set Piontek's Denmark is entirely where it's at for me as far as European international football is concerned. Absolutely adored that side. I remember seeing them beat England, uh, European Championship qualifier at Wembley, uh, decided by an Alan Seamanson penalty. But, you know, Denmark was so much better than just winning it 1 0 on a penalty. They totally outclassed England. Um, I remember the, the game in Copenhagen and England succumbed to a late equaliser for a 2 2 draw. But it would have been daylight robbery had England won that match. You know, it's insane how close England came to winning that game. You know, when I look back at it, uh, and, and I was, I was just transfixed by this team and so sorry, elegant as well. You know, uh, say we've been chatting about it. How I've managed to get hold of a replica of the the '86 Denmark kit, but the '84 oh, one. It's unbelievable. Absolutely class as well, you know, and and there's just everything about them, and, and it was, you know, the, the emergence of Michael Loudrop, and and you know, eventually you know, as Liverpool fan, we'd have Jan Molby who could you know only only rarely get a game in that Denmark side, uh, but Preben Elkiar was the one for me, you know, he, he was just such a maverick, uh, you know, Michael Loudrop was was excellent, brilliant, so skilled, but everything was so measured and almost scientific. Uh, you know, he had that textbook career that took him through, you know, Juventus, even when he went to Juventus' first two seasons, he spent them on loan at Lazio. Uh, you know, from Juventus, it was to Barcelona, then to Real Madrid. He played in these iconic, you know, venues for these iconic clubs. Uh, but there's Elkiar, who, you know, had so much natural talent. Uh, probably, a, you know, an even better God-given gift, you know, for, for football. Uh, yet fallible person, uh, fallible personality that meant that you know his best football was played off the beaten track. Uh, you know he, he'd he'd struggled to to buckle down as a kid. Uh, uh, Cologne under Hennes Weisweiler, who, who coached um, the Borussia Mönchengladbach side of the the early uh, early to mid nineteen seventies. Um, he'd uh, left there as a teenager. He, he went to Lockeren in Belgium, who, who were a, a, a relatively unremarkable 
Belgian side. You know, there the, the weren't an Anderlet or, uh, you know, a Bruges or a Stand of the Age. This was Locker. Uh, mm. You know, uh, that the just really, you know, an unremarkable side with a remarkable player. Uh, you know, he has this incredible 1984 European Championship that, you know, attracts the attention of, of Serie A and he goes to, to Verona, uh, you know, uh, and wins the title with him. He wins Serie A with Verona. You know, the most, you know, absolutely ridiculous thing to happen. Uh, and then part of that 86 side that, that should have gone so much further. You know, they they destroyed Scotland. You uh, no, the, the sixth goal was the put past Yugoslavia. Sorry, uh, Uruguay. Uruguay, uh, yeah. Defeated, a, you know, a, a, a strong but quite dull West German side. Totally outclassed them. And then that last 16 game against Spain, 1-0 up, cruising. Uh, a one misplaced pass from from Jesper Olsen and, and the wheels just completely fell off. Uh, you know, it's so it, weird, it, that, Steve, wasn't it? If it, you look it back at that weird. game, like it's so strange what happened there. It, it was strange, but I mean, I've I've watched that game since, and you know, the Denmark themselves, it, it was like punch and counter punch, and every time that Spain went forward, there was a period of the game where every time Spain went forward, they seemed to score. Uh, yeah. Every time that Denmark went forward, it was a near miss. You know, it, it on another day that game probably finishes five all. You know, it, <laughs> it, it, it wild. You know, they, they were missing. Um, oh, what was his name? Oh, it's going to annoy me. Frank Arneson. Uh, they were missing. He got sent off needlessly at, towards the end of the the West Germany game. I think it was uh, Lothar Mateus kind of like you know goaded him into into a foul basically and, and you know, retaliating to some to something that was that was happening and he got himself sent off and was was suspended for the game uh, and he'd been so important to, to the Denmark side um, and yeah change of formation and it was almost like Denmark went into that game without a central midfield it, it was it was you know the strangest of formations and it was very bold and it was a you know huge thing to do but you know and it was a good Spain side as well it was Boutregrain you know, it was Michel and you know, uh, it was one of those instances where Denmark were were cursed for winning their group, um, because like West Germany went through to face Morocco, you know, for instance. So West Germany finished second in the group and got an easier ride in the last sixteen. Uh, you know, Denmark ended playing, you know, a Spanish side that had had finished uh, second in their group to Brazil. So you know, there was just no prize there for Denmark winning and dominating their group. Um, so yeah, you know, even even in the like that parallel universe, you know, if they'd have gone through to the last eight, if they made it to the quarterfinals, um, you know, it, it would have been Belgium that they'd have played, uh, and they'd have had the beating of Belgium. You know, so it, it was on that Spain side. It could could have been so much different in that World Cup. But even even that Belgian side, they edged out my other favourite European uh, international side, and that was the Soviet Union. Um, Belenov and Protasov and you know, all of those wonderful players, Kuznetsov and, and Lysenko, Dasiat and Goal. Uh, you know, I absolutely adore that side that played at Mexico '86 and the Euro '88 tournaments. Um, but the two of them, Denmark. If you're ever, if you're ever idle and wanting to watch a, you know, an old retrospective game of football, head to YouTube and look yeah. up the the World Cup qualifier from June '85 between Denmark and the Soviet Union. In Copenhagen, it's just the peak hipsterism. You know, it's Belenov and Protasov. It's, <laughs> it's you know it's all of those. It's it's LKR. It's Laudrup. It's it's just the most wonderful international game of football, and the pace is unremitted. You know, it wouldn't look out of place now. Uh, you know, it, the, I think it was Per Furman that uh, that played the game, started the game, and, and he couldn't make it back out into the pitch for the second half because of the pace of it. Uh, you know, it, it is you know the most the most incredible incredible game of uh, of international football. You, you also did a piece as well about the two the two larger brothers, uh, yes, in these football times, um, and you mentioned Alkir as well. Now we'll we'll touch briefly on the two larger brothers as well because I think I think you, you how can you not when they were so talented? But is it is it one of the things with Alkir that um, he just seemed a bit of sort of like a. A, a free type sport where he could have he could have went to one of the major teams in Europe really like he could have went to one of the big teams 
and, and done very, very well and won himself a host of medals. But he just decided to do his own thing. And like that Verona story, uh, maybe there has been a book, I'm so sorry if there has, um, but that, that's a story and a half to be told. Yes, you know, Brian Loudrup has a, quite a lot in common with, with uh, Elkia in, in that respect. Uh, you know, career moves that, you know, he's he's taken for his own well-being, I think, rather than what's expected of him. You know, you get the feeling that Michael always did what was expected of him, uh, you know, and graced the clubs that, you know, it was almost like fate was dictating and, and that he had a duty to go and play for these clubs. Whereas Brian, yeah, he, he you know, headed off to, to Fiorentina, um, where he was he was relegated in one of the most ridiculously talented sides. Oh. Spent a, a season on loan at AC Milan, but was cursed because of the, the foreigners rule and, and could only feel three. I think it was three foreigners at the time. Uh, the, 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 one of the most insane things being the 1994 Champions League final was that Brian Laudrup was in the AC Milan squad, but was the odd foreigner out and sat and watched it from the stands. Michael Laudrup was the odd foreigner out for, for Barcelona, watched it from the stands. You know, the, the concept of the two Laudrups going up against each other in, in Europe's biggest match was was lost, you know, for for, for all time. There. Uh, you know, from the, you know, Rangers, you know, he seemed to have an absolute ball at Rangers. And, and then uh, he he represented Ajax as well, you know. So, you know, he did kind of shadow his brother in, in some ways, you know, whether that's into the Bromby side or... You know, into the national team, uh, you know, he, he did follow Michael to Serie A. Uh, you know, the, the two did play at Ajax, but, you know, never together. But, you know, he, he did grace these, uh, you know, arenas. There was, you know, Barcelona tried to coax him to, to the new camp. You know, he, he turned Barcelona yeah. down, basically. So, you know, mm-hmm. he, he did have, you know, a presence of mind to say, no, I'm going to do it my way rather than, you know, following what's what what people might feel as expected, but within that, that that gave him this great uh, blossoming on the international scene because you know his latter years uh, in the in the national team, um, you know, he, he was certainly outperforming his brother. You know, he he was, I think, certainly at the '98 World Cup, he was the more effective of the two. Um, Euro '96, they didn't get out of the group stages, but Brian was was particularly. Uh, impressive uh, and of course you know he was the, the guide in light when they won the, the 1992 European Championship when Michael refused to, to be part of it so yes you know Brian uh, you know eventually kind of out outshone his brother international level later on Michael's best international years were were kind of like the the mid the mid 80s basically well, a brilliant side, and if you haven't read uh, Rob Smith's book on Danish Dynamite, then I highly recommend you oh, do, right. yes. uh, folks, because it's it's such a brilliant. But that was my friend Michael <clears throat> highlighted this to me because I think Rob maybe did an article on them in the Guardian one time. Like I I, I wasn't aware of them, like I wasn't aware of how good they were, and then he highlighted it to me, and then I read that book, and I was just again, like I said earlier about that hungry team, I'd, I'd just become a little bit tiny bit obsessed with him and and then you should, I, I so busy that you're coming on the podcast tonight with me and you get that that top and I am stupidly jealous and I get paid on, <laughs> get paid on Friday and, and instead of buying Finn football goals for his birthday I might have to purchase a Denmark top for myself but I'll, I'll speak to his mother after this and see if I can run a pastor um before I let you go Stephen thanks so much for giving us your time it, it's it's been brilliant uh What's next for you, writing wise? Like, what's in, is there anything you can talk about earning in the pipeline, or, or what's next? Uh, yeah, uh, like I say, I haven't written uh, books on the Cup Winners' Cup and the UEFA Cup. Um, yep. There's a trilogy to, to finish, and and that's currently in progress on the the European Cup. So you know, it, it's it's not going to be Champions League. It's it's the European Cup kind of you know, 55, 56 to to ninety one, ninety two, which was the last season that it was played as the European Cup, although it was, uh, you know, a pile almost for the, for the dawn of the Champions League. It was, you know, the group stages were introduced that, that season. Um, yeah, from 92-93, from it became the Champions League. So while there'll be a chapter at the end that, that acknowledges that and, and looks at that, you know, the predominant basis of the book is, is the European Cup years. 
uh, which you know just takes in all of the European royalty and the, and the gods of the game. It's De Stefano, which it's Pushkas, which you know it's part of the 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 Hungarian football you know uh, yeah. ethos and and you know all of that. It's Gento. It's you know it's a, it's the the Benfica of Eusebio. It's Altafini with M- Milan. It's you know Helena Herrera's Inter. Oh, it's, what a guy! These times. It's Ajax. It's Cruyff. It's Michels. It's Happel with with Feyenoord and. Uh, Hamburg, it's it's Beckenbauer, Muller, Bayern Munich, it's Liverpool, it's Darglish, it's Keegan, it's Forrest with, with <laughs> Robertson, Miller, it's all of these teams. It's you know, uh, you know, through the eighties, you know, all the way up to to ninety two. So it's for me, what are the you know the gods of the game, the the players that I grew up with, the stories of, and the players that that I watched while I was at my most impressionable, which you know will will complete the trilogy basically and uh, and beyond that of an unfinished book that's due out in 2022 in time for the world cup as well which will be world cup themed uh that that uh, isn't far away from from that denmark shirt oh i cannot wait for both of these books Stephen. <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna purchase next um the uefa cup book and then that the, both those books you have coming out, you've, the way you've just t- spoken about that European Cup book, I'm absolutely fizzing here. Um, that's something that'd be right up my street. <laughs> I I call it the European Cup instead of the Champions League, and I do it yeah, on purpose to wind knows. people up. Yeah. It's the European yeah, Cup. I, I, I do the same. No, it's, yeah. it's the European Cup. It's not the Champions League. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, so I, I, I subscribe to that. <laughs> <laughs> Good man. Listen, uh, thanks so much for your time, Steve. Um, anyone wants to catch Steve, you can get him on, on These Football Times, uh, and this is Anfield for Liverpool fans. And on his Twitter, at, if you don't mind me saying it, uh, Scraggy underscore 74. Um, I would highly recommend you start reading Steve's stuff if you're not already. And um, thanks so much, folks, for listening. As I always say at the end of our podcast, you can catch us on all your podcast apps at the Football Babble Pod. And... Um, you can get us on our Patreon. The link will be up on our Twitter and our Instagram because I always forget it anyway. <laughs> Brent's not here to remind me. But thanks again, folks. And we'll speak to you again later next week. Good luck.